if I have the femur going into internal orientation or it's internally rotated and I have a tibia externally rotating on that femur, then that is a problem. And if I have excessive knees coming in for a person who can't utilize a propulsive strategy and can't exhale effectively to ascend their pelvic floor without those knees literally knocking into each other, then that's a problem. And if I have somebody who has knee pain or has um, a history of knee injuries, then that can also be a sign where I need to intervene here. That was Justin Moore, and you are listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Simply Faster. There are a lot of sports technology companies out there, but Simply Faster is the only website you can go to that features an online store that covers the bandwidth of training technology, from force plates to timing systems to muscle simulators and more. Some products of Simply Faster that I use and love include things like the Freelap Timing System and K-Box, or coaches' favorites such as GymAware. Recently, Simply Faster has added two units that as a coach, you should definitely take a look at. The first is the Muscle Lab Contact Grid, which is an extremely affordable and portable step-by-step, literally, system to collect data on jumps, bounds, sprints, agility, hurdle hops, and really as much as your creative mind can imagine. In what used to take a whole runway worth of collecting of data collecting strips, the Contact Grid does it all with only two small strips that together cover up to 40 meters of sprinting. Ground contact time, step rates, rhythms, and beyond are at your fingertips with this device. Another new unit, the VO2 Master, is an ultra-portable gas exchange analyzer. Don't guess on energy system development when you can get direct insight into VO2 capabilities in relation to specific sports skills, rather than uh, being hooked up to tubes on a treadmill or worse yet, a cycle ergometer to get a VO2 max. Think of the VO2 Master as your own gas exchange lab without the tubes and wires. Deepen your analysis in the specific conditioning preparation of your athletes with the VO2 Master today. These products and incredible customer service make Simply Faster your go-to for your sports technology needs. I'm happy to have partnered with them in sponsoring this podcast. Their support has been tremendous, so check them out today at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Welcome to another episode of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Thanks for being here today. We have back on the show for his third appearance, Justin Moore. Justin is the head performance coach at Parabolic Performance and Rehab in Montclair, New Jersey. Justin has a wide swath of experience in the athletes he has worked with, all the way from ice dancers, pro football players, eight-year-olds, and everything in between. Uh, He is highly involved in combine prep as well, and he has been on two other awesome shows, episode 78, which was in-depth on weightlifting, and then 124 on sprint and speed training. And one thing that Justin overlays or puts as a backdrop to all these things is the biomechanics and function of the human body. Justin is well-versed in the concepts of PRI, Postural Restoration Institute, the workings and teachings of Bill Hartman, and many other elite coaches. So you're always going to see this fully holistic, fully integrative um, viewpoint of how the body works and how we should therefore assess and train it as a result. And it's information that you're not going to get a lot of other places. I always love having Justin on this show. Today, we're going to get really into an area of biomechanics and sports performance that thankfully is getting more attention. And that's the ideas of internal rotation and knees in, the idea of knees in and jumping. And it's something that all great jumpers and all great athletes utilize. You can't be elastic unless you internally rotate. So the question then becomes, well, when is the knees traveling inwards, in, for example, a jump, a bad thing? Because this is the very thing that ACL programs are manufactured around is avoiding this completely, which is kind of like the same thing as saying, just don't pronate. Um, we know that there's a bandwidth between pronation and supination. And so, well, I don't want to steal any of this episode, but this uh, there's clearly has to be a delineating line where this knees in or may become injurious. And that is where the knowledge of Justin Moore is just phenomenal and on another level almost entirely. Uh, Justin has mentorship from 
the workings of PRI or Postural Restoration Institute, Bill Hartman, and many other elite coaches. And so Justin is going to tackle this question of knees in when might this naturally occurring phenomenon of elite elastic athletes become a bad thing and when and why. And he goes into it from a perspective, uh, not, um, not just um, he gets outside the box. He goes into it on a body fluids and hydraulics and respiration perspective, a proximal or working inside to outside perspective that not only gives us a fuller view of the human body and a fuller view of its workings, but also helps us to really assess the, an athlete from a totally holistic perspective when engaging these things. Because the last thing we want is just to coach athleticism out of athletes because somebody said knees in is bad, when we clearly see the opposite being demonstrated in so many elite athletes. So I am going to hang up my pre-roll at this point. Let's get onto this show with a brilliant coach, Justin Moore of Parabolic Performance. Something that I really wanted to get to today was, and this is something we talked about a little bit before this show, was the idea of um, knees in and jump takeoff. So obviously, we all know that the, the knees traveling inwards or rotating inwards is a really important element of elastic return in jumping. And I think that's finally something the industry is starting to take hold of, that this is normal. Uh, we shouldn't coach this out of all athletes and, and instantly think it's this horrible thing. Um, but what in in what cases or... In your opinion, what when does that potentially become a problem? Or is there athletes where the knees are traveling in where this may be an issue where we need to potentially intervene and do something differently than just letting them continue to jump the way they are? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question and it's it's a tough one. I think the first thing we have to understand is that context is always going to be king here. Um, and so I can't give an exact answer in terms of the situation where it's appropriate to intervene and not. But what we can appreciate is uh, exactly or, or why that situation arises to begin with. So why we see people utilizing this kind of uh, knees coming closer together, like twitching in strategy. Um, and we see it throughout athletic performance, right? We yes. see it in jumping, but we also yes. see it in lifting, right? We see the best Olympic lifters in the world coming out of the bottom of a squat and their knees come towards each other or twitch towards each other. Right. And then they come back out and everyone's like, Oh, it's, you know, it's valgus. It's bad. But when you look at the best lifters in the world, uh, they all do it. And when you look at the best jumpers in the world, they all do it. Yes. There is something to this, right. And there, there has to be a reason that the system self-organizes itself in this way to produce an output. So I think Bill's explanation for what is happening here is probably the most coherent and the best that I've heard so far. And, and I will always tell people like, go to Bill, go to the intensive to learn this stuff. Don't just take my word for it because like anything else, going to the source is incredibly valuable. There's always something lost in translation when you are, um, kind of going through, you know, a secondary source. But from my understanding, following the arc of the hip joints and of human movement, right? As I begin in a standing position and I begin to descend into a squat, right? I am going to be externally rotating and I'm going to be inhaling and expanding. And my pelvic floor is going to be descending. Once I begin to hit the sticking points or around the sticking points, what I'm going to see is a reversal of that. I'm going to see internal rotation. I'm going to be, see uh, exhalation, compression, and ascension of the pelvic floor. And this is also goes along with nutation of the sacrum, which occurs at that sticking point. And then once I've passed through the sticking points and I go below the sticking point, it's going to reverse again. I'm going to see inhalation, external rotation, expansion. And in order to get to the deepest squat, I'm going to see my pelvic floor needing to descend maximally and my sacrum to counter nutate. Okay. So if I do that correctly, if I can go through the entire respiratory excursion, then I'm going to see a pelvis that goes straight down in space 
with a thorax that is oriented directly over top of it. And you should not see the pelvis shooting backwards or tucking under. You should not see excessive butt wink. You should not see a massive reversal of the lumbar curve. We're talking about intrapelvic movement. And we're also talking about orientation of the femurs. And then as I go to ascend out of the squat, it's going to go back the other way. Originally, I am in an ER'd, inhaled, expanded position with a descended pelvic floor. In order to pass through the sticking point, I need to move towards internal rotation, compression, exhalation, nutation of the sacrum, and ascension of the pelvic floor. Because the pelvic floor ascending is propulsion. It is shoot, literally shooting my guts back up into my thorax as I exhale, which is also allowing my thoracic diaphragm to ascend. So imagine like a piston, right? We're just utilizing that piston, that piston-like action of the thoracic and pelvic diaphragms to move the internal uh, fluid, which is our guts, and the internal to manage the internal forces of our body in order to get ourselves to overcome gravity or whatever load we're dealing with, right? And so once I've passed the sticking point and I've propelled or moved towards propulsion, then I'm going to go back to external rotation, inhalation, expansion, counter-nutation of the sacrum, and, and moving towards a descended pelvic diaphragm as I finish the stand, right? So if I apply that concept and I understand that the arc of the hip joint starting from an extended hip position or, or imaginary neutral position or standing is ER. And then as I'm getting to 60-ish degrees and passing through the sticking point, it goes to IR. And then as I pass the sticking point, it goes to ER again. Then when I look at somebody who is jumping, right, I see an individual who is utilizing an internal rotation moment, an internal rotation and adduction moment of the femurs in order to allow them to open the pelvic outlet. Because if I contract my adductors bilaterally, I will pull the outlet apart. And they're utilizing that strategy to open the outlet, which allows me to ascend the pelvic floor, ascend the pelvic diaphragm which allows me to push the guts back up into the thorax and ascend the thoracic diaphragm. So it is literally a propulsive strategy. It's an exhaled strategy that is allowing them to get the fluid volume and get the internal uh, forces of their body back up into their thorax. And so every time we see somebody do that, they're doing it in a way that allows them to propel, right? And because of that, I think that's the strategy that we're seeing. And the biggest problem with this is not that they're utilizing it. It's when it, I think, becomes a situation where it's excessive, right? And because of that, um, that can put stress on the knees, right? When I have a femur go one way and the... Um, tibia go the other, then I'm going to have the valgus moment that we always talk about. And I always refer back to Pat Davidson on this, right? Um, if I have the femur going into internal orientation or it's internally rotated and I have a tibia externally rotating on that femur, then that is a problem. And if I have excessive knees coming in, for a person who can't utilize a propulsive strategy and can't exhale effectively to ascend their pelvic floor without those knees literally knocking into each other, then that's a problem. And if I have somebody who has knee pain or has um, a history of knee injuries, then that can also be a sign where I need to intervene here, right? And so I think what we need to look at is what is their history? What is their current situation? And to what degree are they utilizing that propulsive strategy excessively to ascend the pelvic floor 
to compensate for the fact that they can't effectively exhale. Because what I should be able to do is utilize exhalation and utilize propulsion and ascension of the pelvic floor to allow me to propel in these situations. But if I can't do that, I may need to call on things like um, the adductors to try to open the pelvic outlet. Okay. And so I think I'll give a perfect example here. I have a, a figure skater who has had a history of knee pain bilaterally, lots of problems in and out of PT. We've uh, really done a good job of over the time kind of getting her into a place where she can train regularly, but she's training four to six times a week. Right. And so, um, I mean, I'm sorry, four to six times a day. And so that's a lot of volume to overcome and she's jumping and landing on a blade and it's, it's causing problems in terms of, you know, repeated chronic knee pain over the years and basic things have helped her a lot, right? We've taught her to manage her center of mass in the sagittal plane. We've given her hamstrings. We've given her adductors and abs. We've given her more management of her rib cage um, and the pressures and her internal forces. But every once in a while, it still pops up, right? And so, you know, I'm looking at her when she does a four jump test and her, le- her knees will literally almost knock together and her left knee will dive so far in that her whole axial skeleton is actually rotating to the right. And with that, she's able to use an incredible amount of uh, power, right? She's her four jump is incredible. She's the, I think the fastest and highest female I've ever um, actually looked at on a jump mat. But at a certain point I had to say, okay, you, your outputs may be extremely high with this strategy, but we're in a situation where chronic discomfort and pain in your knees is holding us back, right? And you can't practice and it's limiting your practice because of that. And so it's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily follow. I can't guarantee that it's because of that valgus moment. And she did have a relatively authentic valgus moment, but it's certainly possible. So I need to open up more variability, more options. I need to give her a greater excursion um, through both her joints and through her uh, and through respiration to allow her to effectively propel. And so because she is a narrow infrasternal angled individual, she is an inhaled axial skeleton with an exhaled compensation, right? So inhalation is load. Inhalation is descension of the pelvic diaphragm. It is guts going down, right? And so underlying her superficial strategies, I need to give her the ability to effectively ascend her pelvic floor to exhale and create an exhaled axial skeleton position. I need to, I need to capture um, a greater concentric strategy on her so that she doesn't have to rely on this compensatory propulsion that uh, you know, she can't, she goes back to every time we do something fast or explosive. So I can get her to control it in slow situations, but if she's jumping or doing a four jump or plyometrics, it just becomes very profound right away. So we're actually working now on doing different activities that train and encourage propulsion and ascension of the pelvic floor, um, and exhalation. And not only has her mechanics or have her mechanics improved, but she's been pain-free now for multiple months. And because of that, she can train more regularly. Her jumps are improving. Her capacity is improving. And she's set now to uh, you know, compete really well at regionals in a couple of weeks. So I think it's one of those situations where I'm a little concerned that people are becoming movement nihilists, right? They're seeing this knees in situation and they're saying, oh, well, like there's no such thing as bad movement. Like knees in is great. Everyone should be knees in like all these great athletes do it. So let's coach knees in. And I think what we need to appreciate is why they're utilizing the knees in strategy. And as long as it's within sustainable means and we're giving them enough variability of their skeleton in order to uh, not become so rigid that, uh, you know, health is compromised, then it's fine. But if somebody has a history of knee joint problems or chronic pain or current pain and their training is restricted 
because they're limited in their um, respiratory variability, then I think we need to work on restoring that. And it's the same concept with, um, you know, uh, the foot position. So pronation versus supination. They're both important, right? Supination is load. Supination is what is occurring at uh, heel contact and early stance phase of gait. When we are propelling and we are uh, putting load through an extremity in mid stance or mid propulsion, um, we're going to see pronation or maximal pronation. And then as we tow off and we exit aside, we're going to move towards uh, supination again. And so applying that to jumping is the same concept as well as squatting, right? Supination is going to go along with inhalation um, and expansion. Pronation is going to go along with propulsion. So they're both important. They're both valuable elements of human movement. And one is not greater than the other, right? It's just context dependent. What does the person need? Where are they limited? And how can we intervene in order to get a desirable change that allows them to more effectively perform their sport task um, with high performance, but without compromising health? You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. I'm really, I'm really glad you mentioned the the part with the feet there because I think that's the easiest part for me to with the whole knees in. Is it knees in? Is it valgus? Is it internal rotation? Like, I think the easiest part to start with is certainly the feet because I know uh, um, you, when you get down that PRI rabbit hole and the pressurization and breathing, and I, that's the first time I've heard of the pelvic floor as like a trampoline almost. Is that's like the thing I have in my mind, and I've heard of the with the pressure in the guts and things like that. I think that's awesome, but I think the easiest way and a good starting point for me has been, okay, and that like Pat's article on squatting, you when you're going down, it's kind of supination. When you're reversing, it's pronation before looking at the gait cycle. And then as you're back on the way up again, you're, you're re-supinating. Or if you just watch someone doing a, a vertical jump, you see that. You see the, the knees clicking at the bottom in conjunction with pronation. But when they're kind of towing off, you, you see a re-supination effect or going back towards the pinky toe side. And so for me, that's always been the easy, that's the easiest way to at least like dip my toe in the water. Okay, here's, here's the basics of this. But we, from, from the people I've talked to, because this has been a big thing that I've been interested in, I'm trying to write an article series on, I'm trying to get to the bottom of it, you know, clearly just taking everybody, these ACL prevention programs that try to make everyone the Lego man, (laughs) you know, there's something wrong there. That's, but, but clearly there have to be these cases where we do need to do something with uh, what's happening in this, this um, rotational gait cycle in jumping if the person has pain. And so I think that the the part that I'm kind of getting at is, okay, well, everyone should be going through or, or what do you think about this or the idea that if there is pain, like the, the gait cycle is easy to, from the foot, is easy to look at. But if there's pain, we probably should start at the hip versus maybe the foot. Or if there's pain, it's probably something that's coming from the hips and the breathing apparatus and the positioning of the hips. Uh, would you say that that is probably more likely the case if there's something that's aberrant in that cycle that it would be something that's happening top down and the feet are just going to go through the gait cycle anyways, or what, what are your thoughts on the hips versus the feet and creating dysfunction there? Yeah. So I'm, I'm always going to, again, default to, uh, to bill on this one, but from my understanding, and this, this makes a lot of sense to me, uh, more often than not, we're going to see a bottoms up compensatory strategy, right? Because we're going to be like the pelvis, the femurs, the, uh, the tibias, the feet, et cetera, they are going to be dealing with the ground reaction forces coming back up from the ground, right? And I have to manage position of my pelvic diaphragm and my pelvis in order to manage propulsion and load, right? In order to manage the internal forces of my body and the external forces of gravity and ground reaction forces when I walk, when I move, acting on my body. So typically the first thing I'm going to do is see bottoms up compensatory strategies in order to deal with that. And so in my mind, one of the most important things that I can do from a variability standpoint in terms and variability has kind of become a garbage term, but in terms of opening up movement options or expanding my ability to 
um, fully demonstrate both ends of the respiratory cycle <clears throat> is make sure that I have control of the ischial tuberosities, right? Of being able to keep a relationship or keep the relationship between my ischial tuberosities and my femur. When those two structures separate, and if you can imagine the pelvis as a whole tilting forward, you would see the ischial tube move away from the femur. And when that happens, I have now lost the bottom of my piston, right? And I've now lost my ability to push the fluid content of my abdominal region of my guts down into something because that is what my abs are for. My abs help to manage the guts. They help to push the fluid of the body down, straight down into the pelvic diaphragm, which receives it and into the pelvic basin. So I need to make sure that that pelvic basin and that pelvic diaphragm are actually positioned to catch the guts. So when I take a breath in and my thoracic diaphragm descends and my guts are pushed down, if I have a pelvis that's dumped forward, if I've lost the relationship between the ischial tuberosity and the femur, then I now have a really hard time pushing pressure down. It's just not going to happen. So where's it going to go? It's going to go forward, right? Because the path of least resistance for that volume is going to be my abdominal wall because I can't push straight down anymore. There's nothing there to receive it that is tilted forward. And so when I push that, that fluid straight down, it's now going to push me forward. And that is essentially like where you get this, this belly breathing kind of looking strategy. And at the same time, that's going to drive further extension, right? And so we have extension of the spine. We have a pelvis that is orienting as a whole forward. And you automatically lose respiratory variability there because you either can't ascend the pelvic diaphragm or you can't descend the pelvic diaphragm from whatever axial skeleton position you are biased into. So for me, whether it's the foot, the hand, the shoulder, the hip, it all comes back to at first, I need to, first of all, assess whether I have respiratory variability and I need to assess what phase of respiration this person is stuck in and then how they are compensating and layering compensatory strategies on top of that in order to continue to, A, breathe, but it can continue to uh, accomplish the tasks at hand for them. So it always comes back to me for to table assessments and to appreciating what this person is capable of or not. And you don't even need table assessments. Once you understand the principles, you can watch somebody move and see where they are restricted and see their strategy and begin to gain an understanding of where they need to make changes, right? But if I'm going to use a table test, if I'm going to go through the algorithm, not the algorithm, I'm going to look and try to reconstruct this human on what we call a chessboard, then the first thing I'm going to look at is... Uh, essentially still the adduction drop test or the modified overs test, right? I'm going to look at, can the person extend their femur passively and sideline and can they adduct? And if they can extend and adduct their femur, that shows me that I have the relationship of the ischial tuberosity and the femur. And it shows me that they have full respiratory variability. Okay. If they can't do that, then I know immediately that they've lost respiratory variability because they no longer have the relationship of the ischial tube to the femur. And in that case, my next question is, well, what phase of respiration are they stuck in? And then how are they compensating on top of that? And so if we look at the, uh, the infrasternal angle, right? And this, this concept has kind of been um, you know, bastardized a little bit. But if we look at the infrasternal angle and it is not dynamic, Right? It is unable to fully uh, bucket handle out to the side and then fully come in and become more narrow during inhalation and exhalation, respectively. Then I know that they are stuck in one phase, and now I can determine which phase. Because if they are a narrow infrasternal angled individual, where the narrow angle is unable to bucket handle upon inhalation, 
that is showing me that they are an inhaled axial skeleton with an exhalation compensation on top of it because their skeleton is demonstrating all of the characteristics of inhalation. They're stuck in inhalation, but they need to be able to exhale in order to survive. So where is the path of least constraints in the axial skeleton? It's the lower rib cage. It is the false ribs. It is the ribs that do not attach directly to the sternum. It's the ribs that bucket handle or don't. So what you get is concentrically leveraged external obliques that compress the rib cage laterally inwards. The ribs become straighter and you have a narrow angle that can no longer bucket handle, but it allows the person to breathe and vice versa. A wide infrasternal angle is an exhaled axial skeleton with an inhalation compensation on top of it. Once again, this is a person who is stuck in exhalation or compression. And in order to create some sort of expansion to allow them to inhale, they have to bucket handle the lower ribs out to the side and widen the infrasternal angle. And then if they are truly a wide infrasternal angle individual, they will be unable to narrow the angle upon a full exhalation. So if that's the case, now I know that there are certain things that these people are going to lose based on the fact that they can't move the entire skeleton through the excursion of inhalation and exhalation. And so to answer your question, whether it's at the foot or whether it's at the hip or the knee or wherever I deem some sort of problem, I'm going to come back to relying on my tests to figure out what this person needs to be able to do. And maybe I need to open just enough variability, just enough um, ability to access the other side so that we can get them into a situation where they can practice or they can perform more effectively pain-free, right? And I'm always, I'm blessed to have uh, PTs around me all the time and have a great network of PTs. So I always am referring out to a physical therapist when there's pain. But at the same time, in my situation as a private training coach, uh, these people still want to train in some capacity. So I'm going to do everything I can while they're worth working with a medical professional in order to ensure that I am helping them along the way and I'm helping the medical professional uh, move them towards more uh, efficient, more optimal or more open movement um, from a system that has become too rigid or unable to express uh, variability. And so I'll always come back to that and default to it. And I'll give you an example, right? If you're dealing with me, I am a compressed concentric strategy. I'm a wide infrasternal angle of the individual. I am an exhaled axial skeleton with an inhalation compensation with multiple layers of exhalation on top of that. That is what makes me good at lifting heavy things because I can get, a, I can inhale and then exhale, but not fully exhale against a closed glottis, which is basically a Valsalva maneuver. I'm very good at creating a lot of high pressure internally in the system. And I've compressed both my pelvis and my thorax anterior to posterior with superficial muscles and a superficial compression strategy that makes me really good at high pressure situations where I need to create a lot of force, right? That is probably not the best thing you want if you want to have movement options, because that concentric compressive strategy is an excellent strategy for lifting heavy things because it restricts movement, right? It allows me to transfer force into the bar or in the case of football into the other person without loss or energy leak because I'm not allowing that pressure to decrease, right? I'm creating a high pressure in the system and then I'm exhaling against the closed glottis and that is a very good way to stay rigid. So in my case, if I am trying to become really strong, or in my case, if I want to be a good, you know, better endurance athlete, I may need to open up some more variability by allowing me to create expansion, some degree of expansion throughout the system to decrease that compressive strategy, to decrease that concentric strategy, and to allow me to create a state of inhalation somewhere an A to P expansion somewhere, right? And vice versa, my figure skater who demonstrates this valgus moment that, you know, is potentially impactful because of her history of knee pain. 
um, she is a narrow infrasternal angled individual with additional compensatory strategies on that. So she's an inhaled axial skeleton with an exhalation compensation. But because that exhalation compensation is simply at the lower rib cage, right? She can't actually create um, a change in axial skeleton position that reflects exhalation, propulsion, compression, right? So with her, we need to allow her to get into a more effective, authentic exhaled state where her pelvic diaphragm actually ascends. And just like you said, the trampoline analogy is really helpful for people, right? The pelvic diaphragm, when it eccentrically contracts, it descends and it, it catches the guts. And then when we exhale and it concentrically contracts and it ascends, it pushes the guts back up into the thoracic, uh, into the thorax and allows the uh, thoracic diaphragm to ascend. So we need to teach her to do that more effectively so that she doesn't have to rely on this propulsive strategy of literally knocking her knees together in order to gain, uh, in order to use her adductors and her uh, internal rotation musculature to try to ascend the pelvic floor and open the pelvic outlet. So in her case, we need to work on more propulsive strategies. We need to work on things that are going to encourage the guts to be going up into the thoracic diaphragm. And we need to do it in a way that progressively moves from slower to higher velocity, but maintains the coordinative and respiratory control that we need in order to maximize that output. Because otherwise, if we go too fast right away, or we put her in a situation where she can't overcome those forces, those internal and external forces, she's going to revert back to her original strategy immediately. So I've used things like uh, you know, seated box jumps, and I've used things like box squats, which I'm never really a, a huge fan of, where I'm having her actually sit all the way down and then exhale and propel off the box. And then I'm slowly over time taking the box away, adding a little bit more speed to the counter movement, right? Adding a little bit more velocity to her uh, pogo jumps or a, a little bit more height to her pogo jumps or a little bit more intensity. And at all times, I'm cueing her to use aggressive exhalation as she propels in order to continue to try to drive the ascension of the pelvic floor that we need. And at the same time, during her you know, corrective and movement prep periods, we're working on things like inversion because when I invert you against gravity, it unweights the pelvic diaphragm and uses gravity to push the guts back up into the thorax. At the same time, it's going to reverse the way that the lungs fill and it's going to allow me to expand more the top of the thorax first. And because of that, I can get some nice changes to somebody who needs to take the guts off of the pelvic diaphragm and get the pelvic diaphragm to ascend, which is her case. And then, you know, we do also work on typical things like, um, you know, being able to manage her ischial tuberosities via proximal hamstrings and inferior glute max, because those are the muscles, <coughs> excuse me, that are going to posteriorly rotate the pelvis. And just a clarification, um, counter nutation and nutation of the sacrum, as well as external rotation and internal rotation of an ilium on a sacrum are intrapelvic movements. They are movements occurring of the innominate bones on the sacrum or the sacrum on the innominate bones. They are relative motions to one another. So they've been kind of mixed up with this whole idea of anterior and posterior pelvic tilt. They are not the same thing at all. So when we're working with athletes who may have a full bias towards anterior orientation of the entire pelvis as a whole, that is nothing that does not necessarily have anything to do with counter mutation or mutation of the sacrum or external or internal rotation of the innominate. You can have somebody who is mutated at the sacrum, internally rotated of the innominate, and anteriorly tilted of the whole pelvis. Or you can have someone who's counter mutated, external rotated, and anteriorly tilted of the whole pelvis. So little aside there, but We'll use hamstrings and inferior glute max to try to bring the pelvis back from anterior orientation and then have her exhale fully to compress the entire thorax 
and then take an inhalation where she can actually um, expand the entire thorax because the pelvic diaphragm is positioned appropriately now to receive the guts. And then when she exhales, she's also facilitating adductors to allow her to get a full exhalation where the pelvic diaphragm is unweighted, it ascends, it pushes the guts back up, and the entire thorax compresses as opposed to what she's doing right now, which is she's just compressing the lower thorax or the lower uh, false ribs side to side laterally. So to come back to it, I'm always going to come back to the respiratory cycle first, the axial skeleton first, and lay the foundation for how the person is able to manage the internal uh, forces of their body and the external forces that are always acting on them. And then if there is still an issue, once I have checked off that I now have given them the ability to manage those things, then I work my way out from proximal to distal. Um, and that's that's kind of the process for, for how you deal with that. And knowing when is just a, a, yeah, it's a coach's judgment call, right? We need to make sure that um, we, at first, always remember that we're trying to keep people healthy, right? Because if they can't practice their sports-specific work and their their specific practice, then we're going to um, you know, be losing out on a lot of progress. So we're, we're always secondary in my mind. We're always supportive in my mind. So we need to make sure that the athlete is healthy. And if their strategy is robbing them of their health and they're in pain, then that is a time where we need to reflect and say, like, does this person actually have the movement options that allow them to express enough variability that they're not overutilizing a specific strategy and now causing health compromises. And in her case, uh, you know, for a while that was not the case and she lacks external rotation and she has a massive amount of internal rotation at her hips, which she should not have based on her infrasternal angle and her respiratory presentation. Um, and so we've had to work to restore that and uh, give her some some homework to do because she's just utilizing what's available to her, right? Internal rotation is available. Her pelvis is oriented in a way that allows a great deal of internal rotation adduction um, and allows her to, you know, get into a position where her only propulsive option is to essentially try to open the pelvic outlet and ascend the pelvic floor via that aggressive, you know, femurs in motion that we see, um, which is putting a lot of stress on her knee. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, it's there's it's very complex when it comes down to it. I mean, I think even just myself piecing through all this, and I'm, I'm sure I'll, I'll go back to it as I edit this show, but I th- one thing that I think, um, and certainly it's reductionist, but I think it would be interesting to con. con- pair and contrast this but i imagine the girl who's really good she's internal rotation dominant she's a great four jumper i'd imagine her standing vertical would be significantly worse compared to how good her four jump is in that case where she isn't very good at external rotation and those types of things yeah it's it's not um you know again she's she's not a concentrically oriented individual she is not a you know a compressive strategy um individual she struggles when you don't have as much elastic return right so she's not a bad vertical jumper but compared to her four jump uh, it is it's it's unimpressive right uh, and that's actually i think partially why she struggles with a couple of these specific jumps that she struggles with she she wants to do um, triple triple combos and so the second jump of that combo is done with very little momentum whereas the first one you come in with a great deal of speed um, and so you have more momentum you have more velocity you have more ability to utilize that to help you when you land from that first triple and you go to the second triple you have none of that so she's unable to create that kind of concentric uh, orientation and that propulsive strategy effectively on her own so yeah her vertical jump is not as good um, and I, I do think there are some elements of elasticity that matter um, and, you know, morphology and, and the fact that she's probably been doing plyometrics and, and fast stretch shortening cycle plyometrics for a very long time. But at the same time, yeah, like that's, that's the case. Um, 
but you'll see it on vertical jumps as well. Like you'll see people, you know, adopting this, this knees coming together strategy. And then as they overcome the quote unquote sticking point in the vertical jump, you'll see them go back to external rotation, expansion, um, and, and an inhaled position as they take off. Uh, but it's interesting to watch and talk to some of my friends. Like I had a, a you know, a colleague who was a PT send me a video the other day of a, a girl coming off of a, uh, I think it was an, another knee injury and she was doing a vertical jump. And as she took off her right leg adducted and internally rotated so hard that it almost, it almost like toppled her over to the right. So if you can imagine like the right leg swinging inwards as she leaves the ground, the top part of her body, her torso literally started rotating back towards where the leg should be. And she almost fell over. Hmm. So that is, somebody who is again utilizing a certain strategy more on one side than the other and who may be restricted in her respiratory variability and i obviously like i don't work with her so i don't know what that situation is but you can watch it in global movements as well and just appreciate the self-organization of the system how that athlete is doing the best they can with the constraints placed on them in that moment but that doesn't necessarily mean to me that we should just say like, oh, well, that's the best they can do. And that is the best strategy for them in that moment. So it's, it's perfect, right? I think there are certainly times where maybe we can improve efficiency and they actually perform better. Or maybe we can open up more options for them. And now they can train more pain-free or more consistently with more volume and their specific practice goes up and now they can perform more effectively. So I, I am a little bit worried about the pendulum swinging too far back the other way and some of a kind of a movement nihilist perspective saying that nothing is wrong. Everything that athletes do is right. Just go play the sport. I think there are situations where we have to appreciate that an individual may be self-organizing a strategy that produces a significant output, but that's, that strategy may not be sustainable. It may not be effective in the long run, and we may have to change the constraints or change the organism or change the task or change the environment in a certain way that allows for a more uh, balanced and variable output that over time becomes significant, but may need to uh, kind of be opened up in that moment. Yeah, sure thing. I I like how you're talking as well about the exhalation, uh, having her exhale on the way up. And I think we just tend to look at lifts and plyometrics and movements it's oh it's either elastic or it's muscular you're either getting strong you're getting fast you're either being elastic or you're doing you know there's but as i've learned throughout the years the like you're saying the compression dynamics and the 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 movement of the guts and the body is a really big deal and it makes me even think about if someone didn't have had a great four jump but didn't have a great standing vertical and they started just squatting for a while and this is a typical program and their standing vert got better how much of that improvement is them getting stronger, so to say, versus being a better compressor and being better at, say, the ascension element of the public floor trampoline? And those, you know, obviously there's probably not a cut and dry, it's this percent or that percent, but we probably couldn't deny that the compression element is a pretty substantial portion of how much they actually improved in that specific skill. Yeah, and, and maybe that is a major part of why lifting um, and why some of these, these strength training paradigms uh, that we know we've seen the research, we've seen it work for some people, right? Like they, they squat heavier and all of a sudden, you know, they jump higher and they, you know, we do different exercises with them that, um, that help to, when you look at it from this perspective, that help to, um, you know, shift the fluid back up into the thorax and shift the guts back up and unweight the pelvic diaphragm and have it ascend. Some of these activities, um, that encourage that might help somebody improve their vertical jump. Um, it might help somebody improve some out, some other outlet of power. Right. So, you know, as I said before, that compressive strategy is really, really effective. And a concentric strategy is really, really effective if you don't want to load all the way down. Right. So if I'm a power lifter and I don't want to bottom out a squat because all I got to do is get to parallel or all I got to do is break parallel, right? I just have to get three white lights. 
So if I have more variability than that, now I have more range of motion and more degrees of freedom that my brain has to manage. So if I have a concentric strategy that literally stops me when I get to or break parallel, that can be a really, really effective thing for lifting more weight, right? That can be a really beneficial thing. But over time, if I take that too far and I lack variability and I lack options and I lack the inhalation and expansion side of things, now I can get in trouble from a health perspective. And same thing with a jumper, right? There may be a point at which restricting certain degrees of freedom and certain movement options and adopting a more propulsive concentric strategy may be very beneficial. And at the same time, if I do this long enough, I will actually alter the shape and structure of both my pelvis and my thorax, which will allow me to be more effective. Like we, we see a typical structure and a shape to the, to the thorax um, in really bouncy, elastic, high-level athletes. They tend to be wider up top and narrower down the bottom, and there's a reason for that. If you shoot, if you push the pressure, the fluid pressure down into a very narrow pelvic basin, and that narrow, taut pelvic basin is able to shoot it right back up, that's going to make you very elastic and very bouncy and very explosive. And those people tend to be the people who are at the, the top of the, you know, the hierarchy in, in terms of those sports. So it's possible that we can make structural changes as well as neuromuscular changes to allow this person to adopt a more concentric um, strategy that involves the pelvic diaphragm shooting everything back up. Um, and that is going to make them more effective at propelling. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's, again, just context dependent uh, because sometimes you need a more expansive inhalation-based strategy to get done where you need. Sometimes you don't. Yeah, I, I, I love just getting outside the box of, of typical muscle, just thinking in terms of muscles and even, even tendons, to be honest, and just getting into the full, the full aspects of human movement. And the first time I heard that too, with the, the thorax position and that, like, I thought like Dwight Howard, like super wide shoulders, right. And the, all yeah. the, all the guts funnel down into a small, uh, compressive tank and then bounce it back up and that being a lot more of the equation than we give it credit for in terms of being a good jumper structure matters right and and some of these things like the the infrasternal angle is structural to an extent right and um it is it is a strategy that somebody is utilizing and that is based on the constraints and some of those constraints are organismic constraints right they are um the structure and the shape of our bodies to an extent we can't control initially. And so we have to make do with what we have. And there's a reason that, you know, there's a certain body type for elite runners. Like they all look relatively similar and there's a certain body type for elite powerlifters, right? You don't see any, anyone who's going out and, and looking like they're going to run a two hour marathon, um, you know, lifting world record weights. You just don't see it. And you don't see um, people who let's say look like a pair in the NFL, like you just don't see that. So there are certain structural things that are going to lend people to be good at certain things and, and others not so much. Um, and so structure definitely matters. And I think that's, that's something that we have to appreciate. And on top of that, like, you know, when Bill kind of gave us the lens to view things with that, we are 99% water by molecule, right? And we are an interconnected system of systems. We do not work on levers and pulleys. There are no joint levers, right? Joints don't touch. If they touch, that would be very bad. We are based on the movement of hydrostatic pressures, fluid dynamics, and the movement of gases, right? And shifting the concentrations of pressures and volumes, of hydrostatic pressures and volumes throughout the body allows us to move because we are essentially a tensegrity structure. And we are a bag of fluid that is um, held together, but is in many cases, these struts never actually touch, right? These compression elements never actually touch. And so fluid dynamics are incredibly important to how we move and how we are able to navigate the environment. So we have to consider the movement of the guts, which are primarily fluid, are always moving and have certain attachments to the spine and each other 
which predispose them to move in certain ways. And so once we appreciate that those things have to move as well, and that in order to move through space, we are always strategizing how to overcome the forces both internally and externally that are acting upon us, now we can have a little bit of better appreciation of the systemic nature of some of these things. And as you said, not just looking at you know individual muscles and trying to get stronger to run faster um, or things of that nature. Yeah, getting outside the box, man. It's yeah, the the, the whole fluid dynamics thing. I mean, it, in putting together what you've talked about so far, and then my own past history with it, it does. It just makes a lot of sense, and it's fun to think of things from uh, that perspective because just the muscle equation doesn't explain it all. In my experience, with just the, the squats and the four jump and the the single jump and and putting it a little bit reductionist, but it's 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 so important to get outside that box. Um, last, like just in this last little bit, I, and I don't know if it, this isn't an easy proposition by any sense, but you know, if, if you're with me in an elevator for, you know, we're, it's a pretty high building. So we're stuck for two minutes and you had to just explain to me why, why we shouldn't always just let the knee, like where there might be a case, the case to not just let the knees travel in as they are. Um, and what, what would you say, like, what would a basic starting point be if you had to summarize that in just a couple, a minute or two? Because if you are, you have to appreciate what, how we are distributing the forces that are acting upon the body, right? And so if I'm jumping, propelling, landing, and my knees are caving inwards, right? And at the same time, we are aware that there is a, a transverse plane torque at the knee. So the, the, the femur is going into internal rotation and the tibia is into an externally rotated position, right? That is a compensatory position to try to create propulsion because what you're also going to see on that tibial external rotation is likely pronation of the foot, right? And so we are, this person is trying to compensate around an inability to express something, right? Inability to express a authentic propulsive strategy. And in doing so, they are placing load. Every time they do that, they are placing a great deal of force through those structures over and over and over and over again, right? And we know that there are not many degrees of freedom in the transverse plane around the knee. And so if I place that load through that knee joint with that torque being placed on it over and again, now I may have an overuse injury. I may have the sensation of threat due to the decreased uh, options I have and the fact that I'm constantly overloading the same tissues, or I may have a, an acute injury. And if I can give that person more movement options and I can give them full respiratory variability, then there's a potential that I can help them either A, strategize that movement more effectively so that they don't have to rely on that compensatory strategy to begin with, or B, I can give them enough movement options that their use of that strategy is not the only one they use to do everything. And now I can offload some of the forces that are being placed through those structures to allow them to perform with the strategy, the compensatory strategy that they need to use when they're performing, but then to be able to express the opposite end of that enough that it does not compromise their health. Awesome. Perfect. Hey, we, we, we got through that before we made it to the uh, 50th floor. So, <laughs> <laughs> Perfect, man. I'm, I'm glad I could uh, keep it a little bit more succinct. Yeah. Yeah. No, hey, it was, it's, it's good exploring these things. I mean, it's a lot of complex information, but at the end of the day, we, the body is really complex. Movement and jumping and, and sport is really complex. So it does demand getting into the nitty gritty a little bit, but it's cool to see this industry evolving. It's awesome to see these ideas and, and these ways to serve athletes being proliferated. And it was fun chopping it up uh, with you today, man. So thanks for your time on the show, Justin. Really appreciate it. Hey, no problem, Joel. Always good to talk to you and uh, hopefully look forward to doing it again soon. So that does it for another show. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. That that was a show that you study. <laughs> it's one that I think you want to listen to more than once and take some notes. And check out my show notes. They're on justflysports.com. I learn a ton when doing shows like this by listening to it and writing all these notes. It really helps me to deepen and engage these concepts because this isn't 
I, I do think we, we learn w- what we need to from what we listen, but when there's a lot of new language and verbiage, it demands study. And so this one was really great in that regards. And thank you, Justin, for being on the show. This is an element of our field that is important. It's, it's biomechanics. This is what elite athletes do, but just knowing when to draw the line and how to understand when someone may need to stop or is, is, is being stuck or has a faulty strategy in this phenomenon. Very important episode. Hope you guys liked it. All right. If you enjoy what we're doing, leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. We would totally appreciate that. Also, our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. Support them, what they're doing, their mission. Visit their website, check out their blog and their store, and we are happy to call them our sponsor. All right. That does it for this week. We will see you guys next week with another great guest. Have a good one.